Good afternoon uh, or morning, evening, colleagues, and thank you for joining us today at our very special event on collective advocacy between human rights and humanitarian actors. Today marks the launch of the new briefing paper uh, published by ODI, but in close collaboration with the Global Protection Cluster Human Rights Engagement Task Team. And you may know already that this event is not uh, an isolated one. It's actually a joint collaboration between ODI and the Human Rights Engagement Task Team that has been carried out throughout this year. And it included uh, several initiatives in which many of you participated, including, for example, two webinars we held, a roundtable in September, as well as a peer exchange uh, with field colleagues. So it has been really a journey. And uh, we are very proud uh, to host uh, such an event with partners from both the human rights and uh, humanitarian uh, sectors today. I think we have very interesting agenda ahead of us. Uh, so firstly, we will hear from Vicky Metcalf, who has been really the lead researcher on, on this topic and who will share with us the key outcomes uh, from the research paper. Then uh, we will hear also from William Shemani, uh, the Global Protection Cluster Coordinator, about his reflection on the recommendations outlined in the report but he will also walk us through the panel discussion and we hope to hear a lot from you as well, your experiences, questions, examples you would like to share with us. For this purpose, uh, we would like to invite you to uh, use uh, the Q&A button uh, in a, a webinar Zoom so you can see there, but at the meantime, you would also like to hear a little bit more about you. So if you can introduce yourself in the chat, uh, that would be fantastic so that we see who is around this virtual table. We have also the possibility to use interpretation into French. So for those who would like to use uh, this option, uh, please click uh, the little globe at the bottom of your Zoom screen and you can switch uh, to the French channel to select your uh, language preference. So again, uh, please use uh, as much as possible the Q&A uh, so that we can get most uh, of this event and the interactions. We will be constantly monitoring it so as to be able to bring it then back to the panelists. And uh, we are uh, gladly receiving already some introductions in the chat box. So it's great to um, be able to welcoming all of you in this event. I will not take more of your time and will give the floor directly to Vicky to present us the key outcomes of this research. Over to you, Vicky. Thanks very much, Valerie. Um, and firstly, let me join you in welcoming everybody to this co-hosted uh, Global Protection Cluster and ODI public event. Thanks so much to all of you for joining and I, I really look forward to the discussion that we're going to have today. One point I'd like to make up front is that the research that I've been leading has focused on how these two sets of international actors collaborate on advocacy specifically. And by advocacy, I mean any and all engagement with conflict parties directly or indirectly to secure their greater compliance with international humanitarian and human rights law. 
But of course, as we all know, advocacy is just one area, albeit a critical one, where these two sets of actors work together. Much of our findings and our recommendations in the report apply to the broader relationship between these two groups in terms of how they can work together to bring about better protection outcomes for conflict affected people. And I would also suggest that these findings resonate also with ongoing research on how international humanitarian actors can and should work in greater complementarity with local protection advocates and protection actors too. So over to the research itself. Firstly, why did we focus on these two sets of actors? Well, I think it's largely accepted today that responding to the complex threats to the physical, legal and material safety of civilians affected by armed conflicts requires a multidisciplinary response across peace, development, political, humanitarian, security and human rights spheres among both international and national or local actors. From the humanitarian perspective, some of the most obvious synergies of advocacy effort are with our international humanitarian partners. Over the last decade in particular, these two sets of actors have increasingly coexisted at field level, where we share a similar goal of strengthening the protection of civilians affected by violence and war, and to which end we actively use the same international legal frameworks and increasingly access the same global protection architecture. Though it may have been less obvious, we also face many of the same risks and challenges in our advocacy with conflict parties and third party states, including denial of access um, and threats to staff on the ground. Perhaps most critically, as the panelists will outline in a moment, working in strategic partnership, international humanitarian and human rights actors can amplify our respective voices and influence as international actors, enabling us to work in complement also with local actors and thereby heighten pressure on the conflict parties and third party states to mitigate the worst effects of war on civilians. The research set out to answer three main questions. To what extent are international human rights and humanitarian actors already coordinating their advocacy efforts? Secondly, what challenges do they face in that regard? And thirdly, what opportunities are there for stepping up that collaboration? So the evidence we've collected over the last six months or so highlights a number of trends. As our panelists will mention shortly, there's a long history of collaboration at global and national levels of consciously leveraging the different skills, capacities, resources, channels of communication and points of influence that international human rights and humanitarian actors have. But this collaboration remains largely ad hoc, is highly dependent on individuals and is inhibited by a number of overlapping factors relating to institutions, structures and culture. At the institutional level, there is some ongoing confusion regarding the overlap between human rights protection and the protection work that humanitarians engage in. This in turn relates partly to a lack of technical knowledge in many humanitarian organizations of international human rights law and its related architecture. There is also, I would argue, a lack of clarity among some human rights staff in the UN and NGOs about the international humanitarian system what humanitarians do and critically what our limitations are. These knowledge gaps are compounded by limited documentation and more importantly, perhaps by limited dissemination of learning or of positive examples of collaboration and impact. Many of the positive, positive examples that do exist are the product of relations between individuals in the humanitarian and human rights spheres. There is too rarely a strategic institutional approach to collaboration that can be sustained over time across themes or contexts. It must also be acknowledged that there are some inherent differences in priorities and approaches between humanitarian and human rights actors. 
The most glaring perhaps relates to approaches to attribution of and accountability for violations of humanitarian and human rights law. Few humanitarians would disagree on the importance of accountability, but they generally have neither the mandate, the capacities, nor the risk tolerance to engage on this issue. Whereas for many human rights actors, this is often a major focus of their advocacy work. This issue around accountability is often seen as a source of tension between our respective sectors. But in fact, I would argue that it highlights the complementarity that exists between us, but which is not yet fully exploited. Just moving on to structural barriers. The protection cluster would seem an obvious platform to enable strategic collaboration, but many international human rights actors don't engage in the cluster at all because it simply does not have much value for them. It's often overly focused on programming and service provision and often is criticised for being too bureaucratic. Even those human rights actors that want to engage in the cluster are at times made unwelcome by humanitarian members of the group, many of whom are protective of what they consider should be a purely humanitarian discussion. There is also recognition by UNHCR itself and by its partners that the cluster performs least well in relation to advocacy, a weakness which in part at least relates to tensions between UNHCR's cluster lead and its agency functions, as well as to the aforementioned technical capacity gaps on human rights. To a degree, some of these weaknesses have been assuaged by OHCHR's engagement in the cluster. It's played a key a lead role or a complementary role in the protection cluster in a number of contexts now. But it too faces challenges, including a lack of sufficient capacities and resources available at global and in some field contexts to engage with the cluster. Perhaps the most often cited structural challenge relates to the UN and its seemingly perennial struggle to overcome a siloed approach to crisis response. But issues such as a lack of common analysis or understanding of the threats to civilians, disagreements over how best to respond to those threats and on the roles and responsibilities that have plagued the UN system in many contexts are also frankly prevalent in humanitarian country teams at the field level and in the international NGO community too. Perhaps harder to address are some of the cultural barriers to collaboration, particularly what I would consider to be an absence of a culture of collaboration itself and even more so the high levels of risk aversion that exist in the humanitarian sector in particular. UN and NGO humanitarian staff at all levels, from resident and humanitarian coordinators to program managers, cluster coordinators, programming staff in the UN and in NGOs are often afraid of taking action that may jeopardize funding, access, operations, visibility, even their own personal career paths. And advocacy is seen as an inherently risky activity. It is true that there are serious, face, serious risks sorry, faced by both humanitarian and human rights actors engaging in any form of advocacy. As demonstrated in Darfur in the mid 2000s, in Syria for the last decade, in Ethiopia just last month, the targets of our advocacy may at times take retaliatory action that puts our staff, our operations, even the people we are trying to support at risk. But there are two issues here. Firstly, we tend to overstate how often such retaliation happens. It is not actually that common. And secondly, our decision-making on advocacy, including collaborative advocacy with partners, is more often based on assumptions than on a robust analysis of all relevant risks, including the risk to civilians if we do not speak publicly or privately on their behalf. In the absence of this point of analysis, we are missing opportunities to advocate in a way that mitigates and manages these different risks. 
So looking more positively, what are the opportunities for stepping up collaboration between human rights and humanitarian actors on protection? Firstly, there is a strong desire to collaborate as many of the conversations I've had over the last six months clearly demonstrate. There is recognition in our two sectors that using our respective areas of added value together in a more coordinated way is more likely to have impact than each of us working alone. So what should that collaboration look like? <clears throat> well, to borrow a phrase from one of the interviewees, I think the relationship should be normalized but not standardized, that it should follow a spectrum from a minimum level of information sharing to joint activities and everything in between. The nature of that collaboration should be determined by the specific circumstances at a specific moment in that particular crisis. And crucially, this relationship should be based on recognition of a shared imperative to use our voice as international actors to better protect people at risk in times of war. Our report includes a number of recommendations to different stakeholders and suggests opportunities for strengthening collaboration between humanitarian and human rights actors. I'm going to leave it to William to discuss those recommendations and offer his reactions to them. But there is one particular opportunity that I'd like to flag, and that is the concurrent review of the ISC's policy on protection in humanitarian action and the UN Secretary General's call to action on human rights and its related agenda for protection. That these major policy processes are happening in parallel may be coincidence, but I'd say it was a happy one. Together, they present a significant opportunity to address some of the structural, cultural and institutional barriers to greater collaboration between international, humanitarian and human rights and, of course, other actors. The IASC and the UN do not, of course, represent the entirety of the international humanitarian and human rights communities. But at least as a starting point, these two policy processes combined could help generate sufficient momentum across the international system to reinvigorate a spirit and more importantly, a practice of collaborative advocacy that could have much greater impact in terms of securing better protection of civilians in armed conflict situations. I'll stop there and hand back to you, Valerie. Thank you so much, Vicky. And this has been a very good summary of the main outcomes of the report. And I would say that very many dozens of discussions uh, you have had with different colleagues, mainly in the field over the last few months. So thank you for bringing uh, to us uh, the main lines of uh, um, feedback you have received and uh, the different opportunities as well, as well that uh, were identified. Uh, in the chat, colleagues, you can see the link uh, to the report, which is posted on ODIAV website, so you can access it uh, to get more details also later. But now I would like to invite uh, William Shemani, the Global Protection Cluster Coordinator, to give us some insight also on the recommendations that are in the report. Uh, so over to you, William, please. Thank you, uh, Valerie, and thank you very much, uh, Vicky, uh, for uh, hosting this event, organizing it, and um, taking us through the recommendations today. Vicky, we started um, this dialogue uh, over two years ago. And of course, this issue of a humanitarian um, and a human rights uh, collaboration is um, is an old one. Uh, I've been forwarded yesterday night a, uh, a paper written in 1994 
by MSF on the issue. Uh, and it's interesting to see um, what have changed, what haven't, and what, uh, what remains the same in a, in a predictable way. I think we're coming here today to launch this report, which we from the GPC fully endorse. Um, also, to congratulate uh, ODI, the task team, the human rights ta engagement task team of the GPC for the excellent uh, work uh, that is happening. Also, the advocacy task team where ODI and the human rights task team are fully engaged. Um, in a broad sense, before I dive into the recommendations uh, of the report or one of the recommendations that I would like to dig deeper in, uh, the main protection and human rights challenge uh, that we face today, if we look in a broad sense, is, uh, is invisibility. And we have dedicated most of our Global Protection Forum last week to that. Uh, millions of people go through uh, hardship and crimes in total solitude, wondering if, if anyone knows if the reporting mechanisms can detect them, if anyone cares at all. But also invisibility from a human rights perspective is, is escape route for the perpetrators. Invisibility from, from aid, from reports, from justice, from advocacy, from political solutions. So we have come today to, to launch this research on, on collaboration between two groups of actors, two protection actors, both the humanitarians and the human rights actors as protection actors, both trying to, to be humane, both trying to do right, both trying to break invisibility in an environment of uh, inhumane wrongs. So do we speak up? Do we not? Do we jeopardize fragile access or do we jeopardize fragile hope? What is the decision? This is a daily decision that we face on the ground. And from the, our experience, um, the position is quite clear. We do live in an open world where people hear our voices, but also they hear our silence. And uh, a loud voice advocating for protection of people might seriously sometimes risk our humanitarian access once, twice, thrice. A silence might make our access amputated even when it happens. So access with silence might bring food and plastic sheets, but risk to leave behind this hope and acknowledgement of injustice and route towards justice. And to be the individual, that is standing on the front line and in the village and in the camp to make that decision and this balance is, is quite hard every day. So this is where we as a community, we need to, to make it simple at the end to that person standing on the ground to make that judgment call and give them all what they need to, 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 be, to think about to make that call, but also back them up whatever the decision is made and have a system that can capture all of us. And I hope this research uh, that we're bringing together today leads in this direction. And I welcome all the recommendations. And I would like to pick on the, 
on the first recommendation where it says clearly that the global protection cluster with the support of its UN and civil society member organizations should develop a clear plan of action to build the system-wide capacities for more collaborative advocacy between humanitarian and human rights actors. <laughs> so I would like to, to highlight a number of points we're doing in, along this line. And then I will turn to uh, uh, a number of protection leaders and panelists with us today, both to help us react to this report think about ways on how to operationalize it, but in a broader sense, bring their day-to-day -day experience going forward. So in the GPC, um, we have launched a strategic framework uh, a year and a half ago, and we committed to ensure voices of crisis-affected people and communities that are heard predictably and consistently with focus on the forgotten ones. And with this priority in mind, uh, the GPC is focused on advancing collective protection advocacy together with a range of protection actors, other clusters as well, important, and leaders from the communities and from the civil society to ensure critical protection issues are acted upon in relevant national, regional, as well as global uh, fora. This is important. Uh, it's at the center of our strategy, and what we're witnessing today as an event is, is one pit stop along the actions we're taking for this. Second, it's recognized that strengthening the capacity of cluster coordinators to advance advocacy efforts is critical. And there, we need to, to say what is good and what is bad, and sometimes what is ugly. Understanding core legal frameworks of a human rights standards, as well as practical skills for negotiation, lobbying, and advocacy strategies are really important. Advocacy towards non-traditional actors is becoming more acknowledged and has to become more actionable. And this is an area that we would like to pick up on this recommendation to push for. To make uh, the work we're doing a success, uh, the GPC embedded the new ways of working of advocacy to ensure it is representative of its wide membership. And here, sometimes we make some members uncomfortable. Sometimes it is said that coordination is to make all members equally unhappy rather than making everyone equally happy. We find that particularly true in this area. Uh, so to make our work is success. We want to focus on better supporting local, national, and global protection allies and allow for the predictability of our advocacy that fosters a high quality of actual advocacy that is happening. So we established a task team with advocacy specialists from key partners. This new way of working helped foster more collective approach and maximize opportunities to amplify protection concern. And I focus on more. We've done more. Are we where we should be? No, we're not. And again, this research and the, the pertinence of some recommendations would help us to go, to go forward. Next year will be an exciting one for the GPC advocacy task team. And everyone on this call who would like to be part of this, please do liaise with us. 
we are ambitious and well-resourced. I repeat, well-resourced, having recently been joined by two new organizations and colleagues that are putting dedicated expertise, Oxfam and the local network uh, organizations network near. A collective advocacy toolkit is in preparation to be sent to the field. It will be accompanied by a series of training and capacity building initiatives with a specific focus on local and national partners. And again, we have the human rights engagement task team, Valerie heading it with other colleagues, uh, is one of our most effective and active fora of coordination at, at the global level. And here a big shout out for OATHR, who are very active despite the limited resources, but compensated by a very high level of expertise and engagement. Synergies and complementarity between the two task teams, the advocacy one and the human rights one, is well under uh, on, uh, established. I'm confident that we will be able to allocate sufficient resources, and hear me out, Valerie, it's on record, to sustain the two task teams, but enlarge a bit the package and the capacity of field support that you are doing. So with today, I would like to transition to the panelists to, to help us uh, uh, take things forward uh, regarding this report by saying we endorse all the recommendations and uh, importantly, we are uh, actively going to follow up on, on all of them uh, with partners through the two task teams uh, going forward. So let me turn to the interactive part of, uh, of today. And we have a number of speakers. We have Patrick from UNHCR, Donatella from Amnesty, Samir from IRC, and Francesco from OHCHR. We also have a number of, um, uh, of speakers who will be uh, able to, to also take on the camera and, and give some feedback from the, the field and pose questions. But in the meanwhile, while you're listening to our panelists, uh, please uh, do write your questions on the, in the chat box. And at the end of their main interventions, I'll be turning back to them to ask them the questions. So let me start with, with you, Patrick. First, big welcome to UNHCR. You are the new deputy director for the Division of International Protection, and you're coming straight from field operation that is very uh, challenging. It's a privilege to hear from you today uh, and have you with us. Patrick, with your current uh, hat, but also with your holistic experience, um, while looking at this report, can you synthesize for us what is the rationale for collaborative advocacy between a humanitarian and human rights actors? At the end of it, what is that core rationale of why we should work together? Over to you, Patrick. Yeah, thank you very much indeed uh, for this introduction, uh, William. It's a pleasure to be on this panel. Uh, let me start, uh, before I make any intervention, uh, please let me start, William, by um, acknowledging and thanking uh, the GPC and uh, ODI and all the partners who have come together uh, to pull 
um, this event, to organize it. I think the mere fact that we have here uh, in this very uh, forum, a representative from humanitarian actors, but as well as uh, human rights actors, I think is testimony of the necessity of collaboration. Um, I want to say three things, which to me are critical uh, to, to the why uh, this collaboration is needed. Um, firstly, I want to make it very clear that this collaboration between humanitarian actors and human rights actors is one that is dictated, and I insist on it, it is dictated by the very mandate that we serve. That is of alleviating suffering, uh, protecting lives and well-being, and advancing human dignity. That's the very reason why we need to come together. Because whether you are a humanitarian actor or you are a human rights actor, we are all working in the pursuit of reducing suffering, protecting lives and well-being, and advancing human dignity. And this is the very imperative of humanity that shocked uh, Henri Dunant into action at Solferino is the same one that led René Cassin and Eleanor Roosevelt and others into drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So that very basic idea of human dignity and ending suffering is the very reason why we need to collaborate uh, to ensure that we protect the rights and dignity of the people we serve. Then the second reason why we need to collaborate is very much because the nature of the crisis that we are confronted with have evolved. We are today confronted with protracted, multifaceted, complex crises for which no single actor has all the, has all the answers and ability to deliver. And we are looking at crises that have been in the works, in the making for tens of years, some of which acute, others more protracted, low level. And this requires a diversity of actors across the spectrum from um, emergency to development to um, uh, have a sort of engagement and, and actors to help us uh, understand and figure out solutions uh, going forward. And, but then, of course, there is a third reason, and I think um, uh, these reasons, again, are very nicely laid out in the report. And that third reason is that we are uh, at a time in, in our work where we are expected to ensure better collaboration in the pursuit of the humanitarian and human rights goals. And the Secretary General's call to action on human rights and agenda to, for protection are very clear about the need to collaborate. But again, William, as I say this, I want to make it very clear that the collaboration that we are looking at here is no one size fits all solution. It is one that should be grounded in the situations uh, as they happen, it is one that has to be um, adapted to the various contexts and to the, to the necessities and nature of the crisis that we are confronted with. So it's not about transforming all actors into human rights actors. And I want to make that very clear, that we all acknowledge that we are talking about collaboration and complementarity, not about substitution. It means that we are not expecting humanitarian actors to become human rights actors, nor are we expecting that human rights actors all of a sudden we become humanitarian actors to actually deliver on some of the assistance that we, 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 we needed for the populations on the ground. So I think once these uh, very important uh, 
parameters are understood, then we can go into the question about how do we make this collaboration happen? And I think the report lays down very nicely some of the possible avenues and ways to doing it. So I will stop here in terms of uh, uh, the why we need to collaborate and the nature of collaboration that we have in mind. Okay, Patrick, I will challenge you. You're a field guy. Give me an example of uh, a practice where you have tried this collaboration and what lesson have you learned from that? Give us something very specific to take us down to, to, to the field reality. I think, I think, you know, the report itself, I will come to my own experience, but I feel that uh, the, the colleagues have done a great job in pulling out the report and in really presenting not just um, uh, the theoretical aspect of this collaboration, but they have laid down a number of situations where we've seen collaboration, where it could work or where he, it has the potential uh, of working. Uh, but my own experience um, on, from the ground is that at the very, the very first challenge that we have is a challenge of conceptualization. You know, there is this sense that, you know, in the protection cluster or in, you know, in the protection cluster or in the humanitarian field, you know, we are more interested in access, in ensuring that we deliver the goods and the assistance that the population need. And that some people may think, that the important issues relating to protection or how to use human rights as a leverage shouldn't be mixed with the protection imperative. You know, and this conceptual uh, divergence, or I would say tension, is one that could preclude us from actually engaging on what may be needed. And, and in the ground, you know, colleagues will want to share some example from Mozambique, how we've seen some, the beginning of a very positive collaboration um, between the clusters and the human rights actors. I would not want to go into the details. We are seeing a number of such examples also happening. But again, uh, this is happening because conceptually, uh, colleagues have realized that um, this di dichotomy is not necessarily one that is accurate and it is not necessarily one that is helpful. But, but that said, uh, what the report is calling us to do is to move away from an ad hoc collaboration into something more systemic. And to a large extent, the places and environments where we've seen collaboration, this has relied on goodwill of colleagues seeing the possibility of engagement and of collaboration and doing it. But the report is actually telling us that we need to move away from this ad hoc goodwill related collaboration into something more systemic. And this is where I think that the report does provide us with a number of very helpful um, recommendation in setting up systems, in reinforcing uh, understanding, building capacity, et cetera. And I do not want to go too much into details, but these are some of my uh, initial thoughts. Back to Patrick, you, thank you yeah. so much. We will be getting back to you with uh, some uh, questions on the floor. And I uh, thank already people posing questions in the chat box. Others, please do continue that. Donatella Rovera, you have uh, worked uh, on investigation 
uh, in times of crisis for, for many years. Uh, many of us know you from different operations. You are the crisis investigator at Amnesty International right now. And uh, Amnesty in general is a long-standing partner we find in the human rights sector. Donatella, you've been there, you've tried it. What do you, what do human rights actors want or need from humanitarian partners to enable more solid, more robust advocacy on protection issues? How can we be there to complement you? What should we do to make your work easier, faster, more accurate, more timely? Donatella, over to you. Thank you, um, and, and, and thank you for, for, for this initiative. I think this is a very, um, very much needed uh, initiative. This conversation uh, uh, can really lead to um, eventually, you know, better protection is not just what, what's, what we as human rights actors need um, on the ground, because ultimately that's just a means to an end, and the end is to achieve better protection for civilians. Uh, I mean, I'd say that the base, you know, the very base of the rationale is that humanitarian and human rights sector are very rarely able to operate everywhere they are needed, when they are needed, and on the scale that is required to meet the needs. Uh, and this is because of, of access and or resources constraints or, you know, choice of priorities, whatever the case may be, cooperation and coordination uh, between humanitarian and human rights actors can really help uh, to reach a better understanding and a better analysis of patterns of challenges, you know, with the ultimate aim of, of having a better assessment of the conducts of, of the different parties to the conflict uh, and of relevant uh, actors and the impact that this has on the civilian population so that as human rights actor, we can better focus what we're looking for and, and how we go about it. Um, and, uh, you know, for the civilian population in general, but also for vulnerable population groups, for example, uh, you know, we may, know that a certain, you know, that certain practices are happening in a certain place because that's what we've been able to investigate. If we're able to hear from, from others who are operating in other areas that actually that practice is a much broader pattern, it can really help the analysis that our choice of priorities in, you know, in, in what we pursue. Ideally, some level of collaboration, I very much agreed with, with what was said earlier, that it should be normalized, but not standardized, because it really, really needs to respond to the realities on the ground that we are all operating uh, within. Um, it, but ideally, you know, some level of cooperation can happen earlier on. Uh, and the sharing of the information can form the base of, of you know, of a kind of a, of a, of a well-coordinated strategy, as opposed to situation where sharing and collaboration is almost seen as a last resort. Uh, you know, when individual operators uh, have kind of tried to do it, you know, each in their own way. And then when everything has failed or when challenges are becoming so unmanageable for, you know, to manage them individually, then it 
you know, then it kind of comes as, okay, you know, maybe we need to get together to increase the pressure. But by that time, precious time uh, maybe has been lost. Uh, and certain practices that maybe if caught earlier on and, and kind of a more collective pressure uh, brought to bear on, on, on perpetrators, whoever those may be, and become entrenched and, and then actually are much more difficult to, to deal with. Um, and so I think that much more canon should be done to explore different ways of collaborating uh, in, in advocacy and in, and in, you know, how one gets to that shared and more effective advocacy, visibly or not visibly, uh, in way that, you know, in such a way that, that, that doesn't endanger access or even safety. And here is the crucial point. Uh, I think that we are still too often in a mode where the default um, analysis is that cooperation, uh, more visible advocacy can lead to, uh, you know, can cause a risk. And I think that, you know, much more robust and tailor-made uh, risk assessments need to be made on a case-by-case rather than assuming that it will increase the risk. It may not increase the risk. It may, in fact, increase protection possibilities uh, by bringing, uh, both by bringing greater pressure on the perpetrator, um, but also, uh, or it may actually make no difference at all. It, it may not increase the risk and, and afford, uh, uh, you know, ultimately, better possibilities to bring about more protection for the civilians. And, and you know, and it may bring nothing in the short term, neither risk nor benefit, but it may still have a longer term benefit for the pursuit of accountability, for example. Um, and, and sort of, you know, last but not least, in, in the extreme, lack of collaboration can also in itself increase the risk for, for some of the operators who may engage in practices and activities not knowing that they have caused the risk, produced very negative results for others. Uh, you know, I mean, just to give very practical examples, uh, if uh, some operator know that certain perpetrators are uh, looting food warehouses and holding humanitarian actors at gunpoints on the road, well, then they may adjust how they operate. If they don't know, they may walk into situation that they could have avoided. Uh, essentially, um, lack of collaboration very often, or, or, you know, at least in, you know, often enough can lead to a situation where perpetrators are essentially, albeit unwillingly, because that's never the intention, I'm sure, but they are essentially afforded the opportunity to continue in certain practices, because, you know, the list is known. That is not to say that if it's known and shared and, and acted upon, you know, in advocacy term, that that practice will stop. But certainly, if 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 if, um, if it's not done, then the risk is that that it could um, uh, 
um, that, 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 you know, that could just afford perpetrator uh, a longer time. So I, I, I'll, I'll stop here and... and uh, but Donatella, uh, this, is, this is a very powerful thought and, um, and having it expressed that collaboration might not bring an immediate positive, but definitely a long-term positive. But in any case, it wouldn't increase the risk. It's a, in some cases. Yeah. I mean, that's why I think the, the really well thought out case by case risk assessment is needed. I think the assumption that it may cause a risk is, shouldn't be the assumption. You know, each case is different. Uh, and, and as I said, you know, it may have no risk, it, but some benefit. It may have no immediate benefit. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly for us human rights actors, benefits are rarely um, short term. You know, often it takes a long time to, to, you know, to get to where we would like to be or at least some of the way. Yeah. Donatella, thank you so much. Let me turn to to uh, a third field practitioner, Samir. Uh, Samir was a IRC. You are co-coordinating our cluster in, in Syria. Uh, thank you for, for your work. Uh, and uh, we have know each other for a while now. You bring to this panel uh, field experience in one of the most complex uh, operating environments, Samir. Um, so, uh, be yourself, say it to us as it is, because this is what, uh, uh, what we need to hear. Give us concrete example of uh, opportunities uh, where you've seen effective coordination at field level between a humanitarian and a human rights actors. You can zoom in on the Syria example, but other examples and, and kind of project on the, on the Syria context. Samir, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, William, for this uh, opportunity. And thank you for the colleagues for organizing this. I was just listening to what Donatella was saying, and there was just so much of uh, what she said that resonates um, that I would like to maybe, you know, have the opportunity to discuss with her more in detail. And, and a lot of what Patrick said before really, really hit home as well. Uh, but to answer your question, um, I think before, before I move to examples, we can outline that the kind of opportunities that are available for uh, for this field level coordination can be bilateral, they can be collective, they can be at institutional level and also a systematic form of engagement. And how these are used by us depends essentially on the individuals on the ground, the institutional priorities, the overall tone often from the humanitarian sector leadership primarily. Now, since it relies on these factors, often the engagement is most difficult or strained in contexts that require it the most. And I think you touched upon it, uh, upon it yourself as well. And so instead of giving some easy examples from it where it works best, uh, I'll try to see if I can illustrate how it's uh, still possible, even if in a, in a minimal manner, to do it in the more constrained context. Uh, such as Syria, and maybe I can do some examples from other contexts as well. So the current context where I work uh, is the Syria humanitarian response. And as we know, it's heavily influenced by human rights violations, but also an environment that places a lot of, a lot of pressure on engagement between humanitarian and human rights actors. Um, I know my colleague Elsa will mention an example of this, uh, of this engagement. So some of the ways that I want to focus on are how this engagement has worked primarily 
at bilateral level. So the UN Commission of Inquiry on Syria is a key human rights entity in this context. And over the years, several coordinators um, and myself, we've had bilateral engagements with them. So we've also facilitated safe uh, bilateral contact between them and strategic humanitarian actors to support the work of the commission. Whether this involves where possible putting them in touch with people who face these violations, sharing information that we have from the ground, sharing our analysis and perspectives to feed the way in which they write their reports informed by the realities from the ground. And in return, we have had the opportunity to use the reports and information to reflect in our humanitarian work and analysis at times, even if with limited success. Some of the major human rights NGOs, such as Human Rights Watch or Amnesty, have produced many reports of targeted advocacy on issues in Syria. For example, on conditions in Al-Hol camp, which is the biggest camp for displaced people in Syria, or about foreign fighters and families that are languishing in detention across Syria, or the risks of losing the cross-border modality of providing humanitarian assistance and other issues. And for these and other advocacy opportunities, some of us have had that periodic bilateral contact with these, with these quote unquote human rights actors, traditional human rights actors with them to feed in the information and the perspectives which we have from, uh, from our ground perspective, from our ground presence. And either because some of us are present on the ground or some like me are present within the humanitarian response by virtue of which I have access to information coming in from the ground. And this helps us as humanitarian actors to often call out what needs to be called out in the words that it needs to be called out or reach audiences that may not traditionally be accessible to us on the issues that we want to raise from them. When I worked in Myanmar as well, it was a similar context of severe human rights violations and hate and restrictions on human rights engagement. But again, it was primarily through bilateral contact where many of us were able to have some meaningful collaboration. For example, I was on the ground in Rakhine State since early 2017. And although even then, the humanitarian sector advocacy was quite limited or very limited, the human rights partners were able to use that information from the ground to talk about systemic rights violations happening in Rakhine State that were ongoing even under the democratically elected uh, Aung San Suu Kyi government. So while I was limited in my ability to speak on many of the violations that I could see or that actors like me could see who were present in Northern Rakhine state, uh, I had sustained contact, for example, with a key human rights NGO who was able to systematically use the information that I had or we had due to our presence in Northern Rakhine state and we benefited from them using their audience to convey our messages, highlighting that the democratic um, government was not, uh, was not playing out as, as we had hoped it would, at least not for the Rohingya and the kind state. At a more systematic level, we of course did have Mr. Yang He Lee, who was the then Special Rapporteur on Situation of Human Rights in Myanmar, who visited uh, Myanmar, but was subsequently not allowed to visit after 2017, when, when the final exodus of the Rohingya happened from from Myanmar. So after the outbreak of violence in August 2017, in the immediate period, as events were unfolding, humanitarian partners in Rakhine State faced severe movement and informational challenges. We were sort of locked up. And what we did was we relied on information coming in from our contacts with the human rights actors, such as Human Rights Watch, who were producing satellite imagery and other information through their sources. We use that in our advocacy within the humanitarian system with often at that time, the NGO and the UN leadership to say, we need to take action, this is what's happening, 
uh, this is what needs to be done. Looking externally in the subsequent months, there were several UN member states who had missions coming into Myanmar and Rakhine state after the Rohingya ex exodus. And uh, due to the contact that I had or individuals such as me had with human rights actors, what we were able to do was we were able to relay the same messages around the human rights situation, around the suppression of information and around the need for decisive action, often specifically through measures such as conditionality. So when you, so we were able to have that sort of collaborative approach to echo the same messages to sometimes the same audience through different channels and sometimes the same message to different audience based on, based on our capacity. I mean, we can wonder if this is an example of a successful engagement because at the end of the day, a million Rohingya were made refugees in, in Bangladesh due to the ethnic cleansing carried out by the Myanmar military. But for me, uh, similar to what Donatella said, it was also about ensuring that no one could claim that they did not know what was happening, that the silence could not be excused by ignorance. And I think that's the only way in which we can keep ourselves accountable through this uh, working together. Uh, maybe let me pause there and Thank give it back to you. Thanks. Thanks so much, Samir, for, for, for the concrete um, example. I'm sure we'll be circling back to you. I see many questions uh, that will have to uh, bounce back to you in the Q&A part. Let me turn to you, Francesco. Francesco Motta, you're the director um, of Asia Pacific and Middle East and North Africa branch at OHCHR. Um, so you have a very interesting caseloads and countries and operations and situations that you are managing. Um, in the chat box, uh, Special Rapporteur uh, Mulalis uh, raised the issue of institutional obstacles for collaboration that exist. Uh, I would like to bow to build on her question and. Uh, turn to you and say, how can we actually institute a culture of collaboration between a humanitarian and human rights actors? Uh, what's your experience in building such a culture to enable uh, protection advocacy? And how can we remove the possible institutional and cultural obstacle uh, that, uh, that stop uh, that progress? Francesco, over to you. Thank you very much. And just I want to start by saying how honoured and pleased I am to be able to be participating today in this panel. It's exceptional some of the views we've already heard and it's really stimulating and challenging. But I also want to focus on the fact how much I appreciate the report by ODI and the recommendations and the issues that have gone into because I think this dialogue and this sort of communication is extremely helpful and extremely beneficial for the future. Um, I should just start out by saying, listen, um, I myself spent over 20 years working in conflict zones and in countries affected by deep-seated crisis, and I've actually um, chaired protection clusters in Palestine and co-chaired them or deputy chaired them in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places where we've had deep-seated crises. And I must say there's a number of things that I've learned as a result of that sort of direct experience on the ground, which I'm sure a lot of the people here who are participating in this forum today will have also shared or experienced themselves in some degree. The first is, of course, it's really important that uh, to understand is that a lot of the crises we are dealing or working to address have not just come out of nowhere. They just don't appear overnight, even though they may appear to do so. In fact, they are usually preceded by a long uh, history of serious and sometimes extreme human rights violations and abuses. Um, 
Secondly, of course, crisis tends to exacerbate those abuses and those violations, rendering certain populations ex extremely vulnerable and putting people at extreme risk. Um, and of course, the other aspect of this that I've learned is that it's only through enhanced cooperation and coordination and understanding can we hope to address or ameliorate the sufferings of people in those crisis situations. So of course, anything we can do to enhance that conversation, to enhance that shared understanding and dialogue is extremely important in my view. And this again, as I say, as to why I welcome this forum and the dialogue. Um, you know, I've noticed also in dealing with some of these crisis situations that we are sometimes hampered by things like our lack of common understanding of what protection actually entails. Um, we often represent a multiplicity of organizations and interests and mandates and focuses and levels of resources, et cetera. And sometimes in crisis situation under extreme pressure and extreme demands and very difficult operating circumstances, we can sometimes fall back into our silos and concentrate on our own issues and we see fragmentation and in those instances I think we're often at our worst but I must say we are at our best when we approach this with mutual respect mutual understanding um, and appreciation for the specific skills and experiences and resources that each of the actors bring to the table in addressing these problems. And in many situations, what I've seen, of course, is that we actually share a lot of values and objectives in common, and that they're probably far more uniting in terms of the way we approach these things in terms of the, than the differences that might separate us or that we might have different views on. Now, going back to the specifics on this, the part of the difficulties has always been you can't get co coordinated or coherent action on something unless there's a, a common understanding of what's actually going on in the first place. And this goes back to what one of the earlier speakers said about the absolute need for coherent and quality and verifiable information from a multiplicity of sources that can be brought together and that an analysis can be done that everybody can at least share in and then agree in terms of what it means. Because without that, getting a coherent response or coherence in response is extremely challenging. If we don't all agree on what's happening, then it's very unlikely we're gonna develop a coherent response to it. And of course, this goes back sometimes to the failures of the UN system. And I know we've done a lot in recent years to try and address this, but you know, a lot of outside actors will look at us and go, wow, the UN, it's one big monolithic organization, but often we are an individual with 12 distinct separate personalities all doing our own thing. And again, I've seen the failures in the UN system have often emanated from this lack of coherent understanding and analysis of what is actually happening on the ground. So the first thing is, I would say, is we need to have really um, a good basis of information and all actors engaged in humanitarian work, of course, are sources of information within that context and can share in developing that common analysis, which is extremely important. The second thing is, is I think we have to break down the fear around human rights because there is a lot of fear around it. There's a lot of concept out there that I do not do human. And I've said, had this said to me by UN actors, you know, people working in WHO or not just to pick on them, but, you know, a variety of organizations who say, well, we don't do human rights. We just do development or humanitarian work. And of course, part of my response to that is to say is that you know, um, it may surprise a lot of people, but the actual individual mandates, a lot of these organizations we talk about actually came after the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So for example, the right to seek asylum under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights manifested itself into the Refugees Convention several years later. So whether people realize it or not, or whether they're consciously aware of it, 
by delivering food to a starving person or offering protection to a woman who is at risk of sexual violence or medical care and assistance to a person with a disability and ensuring that we do those things with respect for the fundamental humanitarian principles is human rights work. So there are varying ways in which we all contribute to promoting the respect and protection of human rights in these conflicts. It's not about asking people to become the, you know, angry, shaking my fist in the air, human rights activists that sometimes we have these sort of images around. It's about quietly going about our business and doing what we do on a daily basis, which actually enhances the respect and protection of human rights. But the third thing is, of course, that these things do not happen in a vacuum. There's no point giving food to a starving child if that child's just going to be uh, subject to sexual violence or drafted into an armed group the next day. There's no point in delivering medical services to people with disabilities if the clinic's just going to be burned down by an armed group or that one of your beneficiaries is actually dragged away and tortured by the government. So this is where the bigger picture comes in and where information that's being seen and observed and collected by individual entities can be brought together to develop an, uh, an enhanced or nuanced understanding of what is happening on the ground so that there can be some sort of response that's coherent developed to address that. And it doesn't necessarily mean public advocacy. It might just mean enhancing the programs that are being delivered or focusing them better to a particular targeted beneficiary or ensuring that in doing no harm, we are in fact promoting the respect and protection of human rights, because I think that's an essential link to make and that we are contributing in some way to improving that environment. And that then leads to the other side of it. The other aspect is that the protection clusters themselves, and when we have this coordinated understanding, we can be very powerful when we can develop coherent common messaging around human rights issues of concern, because there is strength in numbers. You know, I think Lincoln once said, you know, a house divided among itself, among itself cannot stand. And so separately, we're much weaker and vulnerable to some of the fears that people express when it comes to human rights advocacy, but together we're much stronger. And it's about also channeling that to the right entity to be able to do that advocacy in the most efficient and effective way possible. So there's a number of avenues that I think we can work on. And of course, from OATHR's perspective, we're very keen to lend whatever expertise in promoting an understanding of human rights standards, in promoting diverse ways of considering how serious challenges in operations can be addressed in a human rights uh, promoting and respectful way, but also on these bigger political issues of how do we engage with those key actors, those key stakeholders who are duty bearers and who can detrimentally impact on human rights and how do we address that as a system. But of course, you know, just my final word will be, of course, that we're like the poor brother or poor sister or poor sibling of everybody else in the UN. We're supposed to be the third pillar of the UN Charter, along with political and development and human rights. But of course, human rights gets 4% of the budget, which may also be an indicator of how seriously member states take it in terms of the level of resourcing. And I'm not saying that resources should be taken away from other areas of need because they're very important, but you know, we do have to do the best we can based on those limited resources and contribute the best way we can. So that's how I'll start. <laughs> Francesco, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for the passion, for the pinch of salt at the end uh, and all the, uh, all the experience. I'll be circling back to you. We have received a lot of questions and thank you to everyone who has posted questions um, online. I see that April as well has been putting a number of questions. I want to, to 
at one point to, to get April to speak as well and give us her experience uh, to answer these questions and, and guide us in addition to having the panelists answer her questions. So maybe, uh, Valerie, if we can find a way to, to unmute at a certain point, April, that would be great. I will, before using the panelists to answer questions, I'll actually turn to some of the participants today uh, to, to help guide us. I see that we have with us uh, Sweta from the, uh, uh, from the UN uh, Office of Secretary General working on agenda uh, for protection. Sweta, we have a live example with us today that is on everyone's mind, Afghanistan. Uh, where this human rights, uh, humanitarian uh, complementarity and tension is very alive. We have a huge drive on the triple nexus, uh, as well as the agenda for protection that you're driving. Can you give us some thoughts on how uh, this new opportunity comes to hit reality of an Afghanistan or an Ethiopia today? Sweta, over to you. Also, please be very brief, about two minutes uh, would be the time allowed to keep the other questions also uh, uh, alive for the rest of the discussion. Sweta, over to you. Thanks so much, William, and thanks to the organizers uh, for this excellent event. I think this has been an extremely interesting discussion, um, and the examples that some of the speakers have mentioned have been incredibly powerful. I think I kind of, the whole call to action, the Secretary General's call to action for human rights kind of picks up where Francesco left off. I think it sort of offers the overarching institutional umbrella for us to kind of come together and look at some of these systemic, some of this institutional, some of the cultural issues and really tries to work through them by focusing on specific thematic issues. Now, under those, the rights in times of crisis is one of the areas which recommends an agenda for protection that you just mentioned. The agenda for protection really kind of comes in on multiple of the points that were mentioned today. I think it really looks at the, at the longer term. It looks at the continuity of protection issue. It kind of looks at creating spaces for collaboration. So really offering the space to all three pillars to actually come together and to have a common understanding of what it means when we talk about protection, because I think this is one of the one of the key challenges also if we zoom out beyond sort of the human human rights and humanitarian engagement, that there are very different understanding understandings of what we mean by protection, despite the fact that there's been a lot of work that has been advanced under this area of work. I think Concretely, where the agenda for protection kind of comes in to respond to your question is that it would offer a tool, a range of tools that would help you understand where it is that you need to escalate, where it is that you would find resources within the system that could help you tackle certain issues, where it is that you could find contacts that could help you address and kind of workshop through certain issues. And I think this is something that we're seeing to emerge actually from the task team that we have that's working on the agenda for protection. It's sort of cross system, it brings together various entities, and it helps to create almost um, an open collaborative space to kind of workshop through some of these issues. Sorry, my time is up. But just to say that what we're working on is sort of a broader institutional umbrella that would help us advance these issues. Oh, I forgot how to unmute. Yes, true. Afghanistan, how do you, you use it today 
what is the real opportunity there? I think there are multiple entry points. One is political leadership. I think this is something that has come up over and over again. The call to action kind of creates the space and the accountability also within the UN system to make sure that we make everybody responsible actually around human rights. And I think this goes back to Francesco's point that this is right, the indivisibility of rights. This is something that we're all working on. And I think it has already helped to bring together UN principles in ways that we haven't seen before and to have very concrete discussions around protection issues, to work through solutions together, to kind of look at gender, for example, as an important cross-cutting issue and how we advance this thing as we're kind of talking about making sure that access remains open, um, but then also looking at the complementarity of the system and the mandates, how people can work together and where it is that of course, civil society as an important stakeholder kind of comes in where some of the other actors come in. So I think that's an important area that it really looks at. Thanks very much, uh, Sweta, and good luck with, uh, with your important uh, uh, work. I see also uh, among the attendees, we have Elsa. Elsa has been uh, on this uh, bridge between uh, uh, human rights sphere and a humanitarian sphere, doing protection in several operations, including in Syria. And Elsa, I want to, to, to hammer back on the, on the question from uh, Siobhan regarding um, uh, bureaucracy and delays and institutional uh, blockages. Can you give us your experience and maybe shed some light of how can we overcome uh, these uh, bureaucracies and, uh, and delays that could sometimes stop the collaboration on advocacy. Over to you, Elsa. Thanks, William. Uh, I hope you hear me well. Um, first of all, congratulations to Vicky and, and to the Global Protection Cluster for this uh, important work and, and the open consultation process uh, that has led to this excellent policy brief, uh, well done. Uh, I'll be brief and, and make two points here. But, but first, by saying that our experience of providing human rights advisors support to the humanitarian leadership in Syria uh, is innovative and overall positive. My first thing, the first thing I'd, I'd like to say is that a more collaborative approach between humanitarian and human rights actors also means to ensure collective protection outcomes and we've heard that from, from previous speakers by assisting in the information sharing and joint analysis of what is happening on the ground. Um, human rights integration and humanitarian action and this collaboration is about placing people's concerns at the heart of humanitarian action uh, in, a, in a principled manner, in a principled response, uh, ensure access uh, to protection and assistance address violation and enhance accountability. And I guess that the example that is flagged and listed in, in the brief, uh, which is the creation of the Human Rights Reference Group, the HRG in, in Gaziantep in the Syria response in 2015, um, was and is about achieving this goal. And, and, and another example and, 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 and another example of similar human rights group bringing together humanitarian and, and human rights uh, actors uh, like in Syria, or just few examples of how powerful and efficient this collaboration, this engagement can be. My second point and my last point is just to say that opera operationalizing human rights and humanitarian action and this very collaboration between humanitarian and human rights actors goes beyond the protection sector. Uh, 
um, indeed, and looks at rights across the sectors and should rely on a more systemic, systemic institutional collaboration, actively supported by the humanitarian leadership, uh, but also by OCHA-led humanitarian coordination mechanisms. And I think that I'm, I'm really glad that this policy brief is generating such a such a good discussion in the cluster and beyond. And I trust that the, the global protection cluster can serve as a platform to explore some of the challenges that we have both at the global level with the ERC office, but also with our China field. So thank you very much. Thanks again for giving me the a chance to speak back to you. Thanks Elsa. Uh, and thanks for the, the good examples uh, that you gave. Um, Center of for Reproductive Rights is also represented in the, in the uh, participants today by Christina Zampas, uh, the Associate Director of Global Advocacy for the Center. Um, Christina, uh, you have seen the questions, you have read the report. Where does that lend itself on a specific topic that goes to the core of protection but goes beyond the protection sector, as uh, Elsa just uh, managed to say. Christina, how can we uh, take that report forward and does it resonate with your work? Over to you. Thank you, thank you so much. And thank you for the really excellent report. It resonates a lot. I think even in the healthcare sector, we see a lot of challenges between humanitarian and human rights actors. Um, and especially in more controversial, uh, so-called controversial areas of healthcare, such as sexual and reproductive um, health services, such as abortion or access to emergency contraception. There's challenges even um, in accessing such services in cases of uh, rape. Uh, and I just wanted to raise actually a, a concrete example of a project that we've worked on in, um, in uh, a refugee camp in Northern Uganda with CARE International and CARE Uganda. Um, and, and basically it's, it um, seeks to address the lack of access to services and the barriers that women and girls face in accessing services in that camp. And we created um, a rights-based accountability mechanism, which includes three components. It's uh, a component, uh, the first component is the Council for Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights, which is made up of nine refugee and host representatives and advocates who facilitate human rights knowledge and claiming of rights through collection and review of complaints around lack of access to uh, sexual reproductive health services. We've also established an ombudsperson who is an independent third party selected by the district level Ugandan government and humanitarian agencies with a mandate to objectively review uh, council directed complaints and facilitate due to bear responses and access to remedies if, if violations occur. And we also have a set of community-based monitors tasked with oversight and monitoring function to ensure implementation and redress measures um, that can remain sustainable over time. And the results we've found so far, the, the project is very new, but the results that we've found so far demonstrate how these mechanisms can actually better facilitate access to services and provide a remedy when those services are uh, denied. Uh, we've seen, for example, um, complaints, complaints surface around intersecting forms of discrimination faced by refugee and host community women and girls seeking services. Uh, 
and they range from disrespect and abuse during antenatal care, inaccessibility of medical equipment for uh, women living with disabilities, and discrimination and stigma experienced by pregnant adolescents. We've seen knowledge and behavior change as a result of this project. Um, among the, the refugee and host community women and girls we have reached in, uh, uh, in Uganda, there's evidence of increased knowledge and claiming of SRHR and literacy among these women. The systems have been uh, somewhat strengthened. We've seen integrated systems for accountability across refugee and host settlements um, uh, in, in terms of the response to SRH-related claims by district and local government bears. And we've actually seen improvements in um, uh, actually getting UN agencies to improve adolescent accessibility to menstrual hygiene kits. Um, and now we have guarantees by the district health office to increase oversight and monitoring uh, of uh, visits to the health mm -hmm. center. We've also seen increased access to anti-retroviral treatment after complaints have been filed, um, as well as policy changes uh, within sub-county laws regarding access to services, which yeah. are implemented. So the, the project basically highlights the importance of directly working with humanitarian and uh, human rights actors to create actually a human rights uh, based mechanism to ensure access to services. And um, we hope that we're, we're gonna be able to uh, replicate this project. And because I think it clearly shows the, the nexus between development, humanitarian and human rights actually is uh, super important. And I think we can no longer uh, remain isolated in our uh, silos and we have to really work, to work together. Thanks, Thank thanks you. so much, Christina. Uh, this is a, um, a good example and uh, yeah, it would be great, I think, that we touch base after this uh, to, to learn more and see how we can be support. I want to turn to a slightly different angle, which is direct advocacy with, uh, with governments. And uh, we have Arch, uh, Archibald Henry from Interaction with us. And Archie, um, Interaction is a, is a fantastic ally and member of the cluster. Um, you do a lot of advocacy with the US Congress, uh, with, also including the, uh, with also the Department of Defense on, um, on uh, protection of civilians and civilian harm. Now, this whole report and dialogue of a human rights humanitarian uh, you probably read the report or its recommendations. Is it blind uh, to that aspect? Uh, or you, it resonates uh, with you, with your work on this direct kind of advocacy that is so protective uh, when it succeeds? Uh, or is it an area where we need to improve more in, uh, and uh, go deeper in, uh, in our work? Archie, the word is yours. Yeah, thanks, William. And I think the report does do a good job at showcasing some of that direct uh, engagement and collaborative advocacy with governments. In fact, there is a section on, on this effort as well. So, I mean, I can take a couple minutes just to briefly talk about some of these experiences and, and successes and lessons um, so that you know people can be more familiar with it. Um, so, you know, efforts to influence U.S. Uh, policy and practice on, on protection of civilians began around 2015 after the airstrike on the MSF Kunduz Hospital. And at the time, collaborative advocacy 
on these issues was quite limited, uh, aside from the work of some human rights actors pursuing uh, US advocacy on, on civilian harm. And then uh, linkages between human rights and humanitarian actors started to deepen through NGO dialogue and through the convening of interaction. Uh, during the Trump administration, the POC coalition grew uh, and contributed collective recommendations to Congress uh, for their National Defense uh, Authorization Act. And this led to a congressional requirement that the Department of Defense develop a comprehensive policy on uh, minimizing and responding to civilian casualties. So that was a very important framework from which we worked. Um, interaction then facilitated a series of DOD NGO dialogues uh, to propose recommendations for this policy. And the, and the roundtables focused on issues like civilian harm investigations or US security partnerships and support operations displacement, um, and also culminated in the production of seven recommendation papers uh, for the DOD policy and a joint public letter of NGO expectations for the policy. Um, today, the, the coalition involves 16 organizations um, working under the Interaction Protection of Civilians Working Group, and engagement has recently expanded beyond um, the earlier focus on DOD and Congress to now include other US agencies like the State Department, National Security Council, uh, and uh, USAID. So one key success, I think, from this initiative was the relationship building that took place among NGOs of different sensibilities and with DOD. Uh, so the main approach in engaging DOD has been to highlight operational and practical measures DOD and the US military can take to mitigate the impact of its operations on civilians, rather than focusing on overly you know, legalistic arguments or legal frameworks as a basis for the engagement. And this tone actually fostered a really constructive relationship with DOD, which welcomed NGO perspectives on conflict and on civilian harm. And again, the diversity of perspectives in the NGO coalition was also quite useful in and of itself and showcased really our added value as, as a civil society group. One last thing I'll note is in terms of impact, we have yet to see the contents of the DOD policy, which is to be released in early 2022. So we'll have to you know, wait a little bit on, on the assessment there. But we do have some early echoes that uh, it, the policy will likely address themes of concerns to our community, uh, like displacement, civilian objects, and so on. Uh, and in our discussions, DOD has been quite receptive as well to this broader conception of civilian harm, rather than like a focus on civilian casualties. Um, and DOD counterparts also mentioned that our recommendation helps stimulate intra-DOD conversations across different military agencies and services on some protection topics. Um, so for example, the protection of civilian objects and reverberating effects of military operations, there, there have been some intra-DOD discussions on this and how DOD can better mitigate the impacts there. So, uh, you know, really interested to talk more at some point if, if you want, but I'll, I'll stop here and turn it over to William. And again, Vicky's report does, does talk a bit more about this experience, so thanks. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, this is uh, great. Now we are, we've, I think, covered a lot of the questions. Uh, that were in the chat box by using uh, the audience itself, which uh, which shows a bit the quality um, of this uh, uh, of this event. But I would like to turn to uh, one question actually uh, to all the panelists uh, that uh, that are with us. Um, 
in addition to all the, the other questions, we have seen uh, several um, examples and questions related to uh, uh, human rights of women being uh, double ignored by human rights actors and humanitarian actors. Uh, human rights, women defenders and women-led organization uh, opportunity to make a change being also sometimes ignored by both uh, types of actors. So on the issue of women-related uh, rights, I would like to, to uh, close uh, this session by one minute uh, insight from each of the panelists on this issue. So let me start with you, Patrick. Go ahead. Patrick, we, we can't hear you. Okay, let me move on to you, Donatella. Uh, in your experience on the issue of both uh, ignoring and not benefiting from the opportunity that women-led organization, women the human rights defenders take, uh, that that is in the field. Any insights from, from your side? Um, I think um, the mainstreaming on, of women's rights as um, human rights uh, is something that started quite some time ago, but there is still a way to go. Um, I think that international human rights organization until some time ago, I think it's less true now, but they kind of felt that they didn't have the expertise that the organizations that are dedicated to, to women's rights could, you know, could bring. Um, but I think that that has been addressed uh, and is being addressed, you know, the issue of mainstreaming. The same challenge that we as international human rights organization went through, you know, 15 or 20 years ago about where, you know, we're still got more progress to go. We're now seeing with, you know, with other population groups, older people, people with disabilities and so on. Uh, but certainly there has been within the human rights movement, kind of like, you know, there are a dedicated group that, that, that have a level of, of specialization that we can't match. That obviously doesn't, you know, it's not a good enough reason. Uh, I think mainstream is happening, but there's a lot more to do. When it comes to humanitarian actors, it's a bit different. And I, I think, again, we go back to that uh, dichotomy, which in my view is a false dichotomy. That is to say, uh, sort of seeing that you know, women's right as, as some humanitarian actor perhaps see human rights as something that uh, sometimes um, doesn't get the attention that, that it could because of other imperatives of operating on the ground, you know, sort of all, all the challenges that, that I mentioned earlier. Thanks, Donatella. Clear, clear, clear. Uh, Samir, you've re reacted in the chat we also see right now Chen uh, uh, writing. Uh, any insights in one minute on this issue? Thanks, William. Um, 
I reacted in the chat already, so I'm going to maybe touch on the broader issue of uh, what some of the uh, people are raising in the questions about, you know, how their technical expertise, but sometimes the leadership signal is lacking or what do we really need to translate this understanding into action. And I think, uh, I think what I want to say is that, you know, it comes down to the issues of lack of will and lack of ability. And I think we have more of a lack of will rather than a lack of ability, because there will always be people who know how to engage with humanized actors or with humanitarian actors, what is needed to be done, what needs to be said. But it's the lack of will in at the top level and then at the ground level, which prevents this from happening. And I think that's where we need to start by acknowledging that, of course, you know, human rights are not optional. We are not, uh, there is no humanitarian work without human rights. And that we are not helping human rights actors do their job. It is our own job. And what we need to come back to is we need to measure our own success in this humanitarian work with how well are we able to do this part of the job about, about human rights. And if we are not, if there is a big gap, it should give us pause to examine if we really are assisting people towards the humanitarian needs in a stable long-term manner, or are we just fooling yeah. ourselves? Access must remain a means to an end and maintaining access cannot always be justified uh, cannot always uh, be justified based on what, uh, you know, what uh, it should be always justified based on what we're able to do with it. So it's not a straightforward calculation. And in, and sometimes we say, you know, it's better to do something if we cannot do everything. Similar to what we say, like, oh, let's let's support people even if we compromise women's rights. Let's support uh, X, Y, Z issues even if we compromise rights of people with disabilities. But it's that thinking of something can sometimes be better than nothing that is pushing us towards that defeatist yeah. point of view. And we need to focus on what needs to be done rather than just what we can do. Otherwise we will consistently persevere in doing something and not doing everything or not doing what needs to be done. Loud and clear, Samir, thank you. Francesco, you're the last one to speak on this issue and you've got one minute. So wow. all this experience. <laughs> Listen, one of the things I wanna say and remind everybody is, is that human rights is essentially about empowerment. It's not about substitution. It's not about imposing on, on people. It's not about telling beneficiaries what their needs are or how the best way to go about it. It's essentially about empowerment. And so when it comes to women's rights issues, when it comes to the issues of the marginalized people who are differentially impacted, it's essential that when we're designing our programs, that number one, that their views that they are participants, number one, in identifying what the problems are, number two, in identifying what the solutions are and being materially active in the delivery of that solution. And this is how you empower people. And of course, through our actions, we need to make sure that we are in fact giving that voice and giving that space and not imposing or in fact causing harm by failing to do so. And so there are ways we can go about this, even in the most complex uh, environments, like I pointed out in, my, in the chat in response to someone in terms of what do we do about humanitarians who say they're not into women's rights in Afghanistan. Well, by delivering services, by undertaking activities, surely some of your stakeholders, some of your beneficiaries are women, right? And that means that when you're designing and implementing that, you should take into account their views as much as possible and empower them as much as possible in that process. And the issues around human rights violations if you're not comfortable in bringing them up yourself, bring them back to those who are and enable that analysis to be done and then development, develop the activities and responses you can actually do that can some way try to address that. I'm not saying we've got solutions for everything. I'm not saying it'll always work out, but these are the options that are available in working with that greater coherence and complementarity. Thanks. Fantastic. Listen, thank you guys. Thank you for ODI. Big thanks. Thank you for all the panelists. Thank you for the task team uh, that is uh, pulling this together. At the beginning, I said that this is 
couple of decades old conversation. And there was this risk of repeating and reinventing the wheel and having an old discussion again. I think what we've seen today, even in a virtual webinar, uh, is that this issue is still raging and alive. And there is a lot of uh, space for uh, bridging and coming together. More importantly, there is a lot of willingness uh, to get there. So we commit as a cluster to keep this conversation going, to keep our actions uh, going. And I hope uh, ODI that soon uh, in, in the next year or 18 months, we can have an evaluation uh, on the progress against the recommendations of the report and keep the flame burning and keep the pressure on. I would like to thank you all uh, for this fantastic uh, webinar. I did promise uh, uh, to, uh, to keep the conversation alive, so we will uh, uh, continue it. But for today, uh, let's um, digest uh, what we heard and focus our attention and then hold hands together uh, to continue this, uh, this work on this issue going forward. Thank you everyone and have a good, good afternoon. Bye-bye.